Hello and welcome again. I'm Ross Ramsey. I'm the executive editor and co-founder of the Texas Tribune. Thank you for coming. Uh, a couple of program notes. Uh, turn off your cell phones or set them to stun if you must leave them on and you want to Twitter or tweet or whatever you want to do. Um, Tribfest, Trib Tribunefest, follow the directions on the screen. Tribunefest is the hashtag. Um, and we'll go from there. We'll talk for about 45 minutes and then we'll open it up to audience questions. So. Joe Strauss of San Antonio was elected in 2005 to represent House District 121. He is in his third term as speaker, seeking a fourth term as speaker in January. It makes him the joint chairman of the Legislative Budget Board, the Legislative Audit Committee, the Texas Legislative Council. He previously worked on numerous campaigns for federal, state, and local candidates. He was a district director for U.S. Representative Lamar Smith, worked in the Commerce Department under Robert Mossbacher. He was an unnoticed candidate for speaker until a small group of Republicans decided among themselves in a house over on Polo Road here in Austin to back him in January 29 and quickly put together a coalition that wanted to end the reign of Tom Craddock as Speaker of the House. Um, that win formed the chief, chief gripe heard to this day from conservatives who don't like Strauss that the Democrats were in on it and so that can't be good. Um, he's got a well-financed opponent this time, some wealthy political foes ahead of him after the election, but looks like he's in pretty good political shape, and that's where we'll start. House Speaker Joe Strauss. Thank you. Morning. Hi. How are you? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. So why do you still want this job? <laughs> well, we have a lot, of, a lot of work still ahead of us, and I'm proud of the record that we've accomplished the last three sessions since I've served as speaker. And um, I really haven't slowed down to think about doing anything else. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the uh, first, <coughs> first thing that's going to happen here. You know, we're going to elect whoever we elect on November 4th. Uh, there's a lot of talk about... You want me to tell you? <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be, you know, go ahead and fill in the blanks. Um, there's a lot of talk about uh, Scott Turner, uh, state representative from Frisco, who's running for speaker, has filed. Um, and about sort of this existential threat, there's some money behind efforts to overthrow you. And uh, so walk me out of the election and all the way up to your election in January. Well, I think the most important thing that a speaker needs to do and that I've tried to do and have done the last three sessions is to work hard at the job I have that I was elected to do, to be a good speaker, to support the members, taking care of the politics for sure, which I've done, helping... Um, Republican incumbents in their primaries and helping some uh, members who are um, in contested races, the, the tougher looking competitive races in November, um, and taking care of the business of the House of Representatives. Um, I think it would be uh, not an understatement to say that there is so much activity going on in the Capitol right now that it almost looks like we're in the session today. And um, that's not an accident. We're building the agenda. We're getting ready for uh, the work ahead that starts on in, in January for 140 pretty hectic days. So I think, tying it back to answering your question, the best thing that a speaker can do to be reelected is to do the job well, to take care of the politics, to take care of the House of Representatives, to show respect for the members, and to get the job done. Is the, the noise going into it destabilizing to that process? Destabilizing? Yeah, I mean, does it well, you know, increase little, uncertainty? How are, how are the members with it? It's a little um, distracting, and it's unfortunate, 
but it's a fact of life. It's everywhere in politics today. Um, I don't know whether it's the, the, just the continued proliferation of social media um, where everybody can be a pundit, a commentator. Um, and it's not all bad to have that many voices out there, but you've got some that are backed with you know, an amazing amount of money, uh, so they get the attention that they pay for. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the members are smart enough to see through what's real and what's not and who's, um, who's doing a quality job. Is there a way to do this without sort of always being in siege state? I mean, you know, when Tom Craddock was speaker, there was always an effort against him. You were finally a successful part of the effort against him. But, you know, there's always, you know, I guess the last couple of terms of Pete Laney, certainly the last couple of terms of Gib Lewis. Is there a way to be speaker without just always being, you know, in the castle in defense? Well, I don't think there's a way to be speaker where 100% of the people are happy. Right. Unless, you, unless you do nothing, you can probably get by. Um, but our accomplishments have been something I think are pretty terrific. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a culture in the House right now of, of being focused on the issues that are really important to this rapidly growing state, education, um, water, infrastructure, and taking care of things that, that the millions of new Texans that are coming along need to have. Um, some would rather have uh, politics in Texas that more closely mirror what we see in Washington. Mm -hmm. I don't want that. I don't think Texans want that. I don't think the members of the House of Representatives want that. And so I think they're, they're you know, it's not unanimous, but I think an overwhelming majority of the members of the House support the way we, we do our business and get, get our jobs done. When you have outside groups, um, you know, there's, there's sort of two versions of how the House works. There's the House version, which is always some version of um, leave this to the members, and the speaker's race is an inside game. Everybody's representing a population, but it's not really about outside politics. It's about inside politics. The other view is increasingly that this is about outside politics, that there are groups on, you know, outside who are, um, I guess, whipping voters to whip members to influence what the House does, whether it's a speaker's election or, an election or, a, or a vote on an issue or whatever. Is that a healthy part of this, and is that what makes it more like Washington? It, it could trend that way. Right. Uh, but this is my fourth election as speaker right. coming up. It's the, it will be the fourth very different House of Representatives from the first one that elected me speaker. Um, in, in 2009, we had a, almost an even uh, split, Republican and Democrat, 76-74. Right. And, um, then, and then in, in the election of 2010, we built a very strong Republican majority, kept it, in the last cycle, and I think we're going to keep it again this time. But there's been enormous turnover, too. I think over half of the members of the House are serving in their, will be serving in their third or fewer less terms than, than, um, than others. So this is a, a, a changing scenario inside the House, which is not all bad. Um, but the external politics are, are new, and they don't go away. They're not going to go away. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the internal side of it, I think, is really stable, even though we have fresher faces coming through. They catch on in a hurry. They know, they know they're elected, just like I am, from, a, from one of 150 districts around the state. And um, there's only one speaker, and he's elected by the other 149 members. So mm -hmm. um, it works itself out, and I approach it the same way this time as I did in 2009. I reach out to other members. I don't, 
I don't uh, close the door on anyone. Um, I don't think that bipartisanship is a four-letter word. I reach across the aisle, work with Democrats, work with Republicans, I work with everybody. There's a a faction in your party that does think it's a four-letter word. Is that a is that a big analyze the house for me a little bit? How much we hear a lot about that outside? That may be our fault because uh, we're fight promoters. But um, how much of um, the house's business is influenced by these factions and this group that thinks you should never work with Democrats and this group over here that thinks you should never work with conservative Republicans? And how many factions do you have in there? And how do you? Oh, I don't know. I think that? I think you could di- you could dissect the house any number of ways. Um, and, and it depends on the issue you're talking about. Right. There are some issues that cut, cut completely outside of partisan, um, uh, partisan considerations. There's rural and urban. There's fast growth, and there's you know, areas of the state that are going the other direction. Right. Um, there's r- natural resources issues where you have areas of the state that have an abundance of water and areas of the states that don't, state that, do- that doesn't. Um, so it, it's really... When you get into the issues, mm-hmm. you can better analyze the house. You can't just say, well, here's, here's the house. Give me one you know, blanket assessment of it. It doesn't work that way. It's much more complicated. And, um, and that's not, not bad. Okay. Let's talk about the lead up to the session. A lot of the last year, maybe 18 months, has been about the University of Texas, about the Board of Regents, Wallace Hall. And I think what he would say he's trying to get to here is the idea that... Um, legislators and politicians and others in positions of power have been able to um, influence the admissions process at UT, that he's trying to get to the bottom of this, doing what regents are supposed to do. This is his, his version of this. Could you walk me through this, this UT thing and tell me, you know, tell me where you think we are in this, how you think this is going to go, and how the politics link back to the session? Well, first of all, I think I'm pleased to be on the campus of the University of Texas at Austin, but I'm awful sick of it being the only campus in the state of Texas that gets this much attention. It's just, it's crazy. And uh, I don't think Texas Tech wants this attention. No, or A&M or, 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 you know, the schools in Corpus or Beaumont or down in San Marcos or anywhere else, community colleges. Um, It's, it's, you know, too, too much focus on UT Austin and too much turmoil here. And it all ties back, I believe, to the, the dysfunction of the Board of Regents that we've seen. And I believe it, it ties directly back to the fact that, that um, those, those seven solutions didn't find five votes. And frustration about that. So this is the idea that you should change higher education and you should form it around efficiencies and outcomes? Yeah, I, don't even, I don't even know what they are. but. I think there's been a lot of I think there's been a lot of um, anger and frustration and turmoil in the the board itself, mm-hmm. and I hope that's coming to an end. I, I have some optimism that we're about to turn the page on this. Um, I think there's I think it's an excellent thing that Admiral McRaven, who's coming in, has has uh, created um, very high expectations from everyone, and I hope he meets them. I think he you know people are really counting on him to help kind of turn the page here, plus the fact that our new governor will be making some appointments to the board, um, I believe, early next year. So I think we're hopefully about to work our way through this, through this period, give the other campuses around this enormous state of 26 million people a little uh, attention. 
Does the Hall thing go forward from here? I mean, you know, you're, McRaven is coming in in place of Figueroa. You're going to have a new president after Bill Powers leaves. I think he's resigning in June. Um, you'll still have six of the current regents. Does, aren't they just free to keep pursuing back to the seven steps, back to the things that they want to do? How, well, why did the politics change? Well, because you'll have a you'll have a new you'll have new leadership, and um, I don't know I, I don't even know which which regions are going off, but you'll have some fresh faces in there, and I hope I hope that the new governor Governor Abbott will be um, mindful of where we've been and and um, and you know think through who the new appointments will be to help us get to a, a new place. I think you'll find. Uh, I think the, the regents will find um, that the legislature wants a better relationship with, with, with them and with all of higher education. What do you think is going on with admissions? Do people in the capital have the ability to put their thumb on the scale and say, I'd like for that kid to get in? No, I don't think so. Um, I think what's going on here is a manufactured issue to steer away from what I think is the real issue so they can't... This, this, minority faction of the Board of Regents can't get their, their uh, policy aims accomplished. Um, I know I can only speak for myself in terms of writing letters. I've written some. I happen to represent a house district in San Antonio that has excellent public schools. With this top 10% thing, there are a lot of kids uh, who once upon a time would have had no trouble getting into the University of Texas who can't get in now. Right. Not, not easily, not automatically. And, you know, I, I know people in the community, people know me, and they ask me to write letters for their kids. I'm happy to do it. Um, but very clearly, um, it, there's no expectation that a kid's going to get in because I write a letter. In fact, I, I even wrote a, a note to, to President Power saying, you know, Bill, um, this is early on, when I, one of the first times, I guess, when I was um, in the legislature, Bill, I, I, this is a... a courtesy to a constituent. I would never expect political, uh, you know, political implications for a, an admissions decision. What's the point of being in an office if you don't have the clout to get somebody into college? <laughs> well, it's, I a, mean, lot, isn't it's there, a lot more than that. I mean, well, isn't there sort of an expectation that, you know, I ought to be able to, maybe I ought to be able to put my thumb on the scale? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's it at all. But I do hope that we haven't gotten to a place where people who are in elected offices um, aren't thought of as people that you don't want recommendations from. Right. You know, I hope there's I hope there's some people that you know conduct themselves in in such a way in elected office that that they are leaders of their community and people that that others would seek out for uh, recommendations. So they have this investigation going on about you know what actually happened, trying to figure out um, whether anybody did successfully bend this process. You had a couple of legislators try to jump, I guess a couple of fellow uh, members of your delegation from San Antonio try to get into this process. Talk about that. Is, the House, is, is this thing with the House and the legislature and UT's regents going to continue to boil for a while? I hope not. Um, you know, I, I, what do you expect? Paul, Paul you Foster, expect? I think, does a, I think Paul Foster has his hands full. I think he's a really good man and I think he's trying to to get things under control, and I think he will be able to ultimately. Um, you know, th th how many investigations do you need? What are you looking for? Mm -hmm. uh, is there transparency in this latest one? I don't know. I can understand the frustrations of the members that, that wanted to have a look, but um, I don't endorse that approach or think that that necessarily is the right way to do it. 
Mm -hmm. I also don't think that another investigation or another investigation after that is necessary. People write letters. I know every letter I write, I expect to see on the front page of the newspaper. I'm not embarrassed about it. Don't say things in letters I don't want other people to know. How, how late do you now, think now, I will say one other thing that I don't think any study is ever going to find out. What about the whispers? What about the, what about the recommendations of, of very powerful people in this state who don't put it in writing? Well, it seems to me like if you were going to make a constituent happy, you would write a letter and say, here's the letter I wrote for your kid. Good luck to you. But if you really wanted the kid in, you would make a phone call. I would think so. Right. Or go to the, go to the you know, box at the football game, put your arm around somebody. And, or, or, you know, regents, I'm sure, do it. Right. So it's, it's, it's um, again, I think it's a manufactured issue. I think you have to have some faith and confidence in the administrators of your colleges. And it's not just UT Austin, it's every campus. Uh, it just happens to be maybe more, more of a, a point here uh, because of the internal politics of the Board of Regents, but also because of the, of the automatic admissions rule. So it's, it's really not, it's certainly not a scandal. And uh, in my view, it's a, it's a manufactured issue. Let me ask you a black helicopter question. Is the stuff that's going on at UT and the, some of the groups that are trying to get a new speaker and a new faction advanced in the House, and both in the elections themselves, um, Empower Texans has come up a lot in this, the ethics investigations of Michael Quinn Sullivan and that group, conversations about new rules. Um, is all of this of a piece? Is all this the same thing? Well, there, I'm, I think it wouldn't take, a, um, it wouldn't take Sherlock Holmes to uh, tie together some of the personalities who are involved in this. It's one very wealthy guy in Midland and a couple of his friends who fund a lot of this. They want a Speaker of the House very clearly who will do what he's told, who will do what he's told by them. And they don't have one. Mm -hmm. What would they tell you to do? I have no idea. They haven't tried to. They don't, they I don't talk to them. Say, hey, do this. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't do the first thing? Apparently something other than what I'm doing. <laughs> um, Talk a little bit about, I want to talk a little bit about ethics. I know this isn't really in your park yet, but it might be. The Ethics Commission has written a couple of rules. One of them is about um, disclosure of funds into third-party groups in elections. One of them is about what makes a lobbyist, what separates a lobbyist from an advocate. And there's another question to that, what separates a lobbyist from an advocate from a reporter that I think you're going to probably have to deal with here pretty, pretty soon. Okay. If the courts, you know, the courts have, have these questions right now, but if the courts um, bail on this, does this come to the legislature? And what's the legislature's mood about these things? What's your sense of it? I hate to keep saying I don't know, but I don't know. Um, I know that this one... Well, what's your sense of this it? One, well, I have, on the, on the money side of it, right. I, have a, I have a very clear personal view. I don't know that it's shared by a majority of, of uh, my colleagues, but I believe in transparency and financing of campaigns. I don't believe in limits, because they can always be, you can always find a way around that. Uh, but I believe in dis disclosure and transparency. Shouldn't I now, be I, don't, a, I don't know that you know, the federal courts see it that way, and I don't know that my colleagues say, see it that way. That's my personal opinion. Shouldn't I be able to associate with others and do it anonymously so that I'm not under attack just for expressing my political views through a group? Well, again, I don't know how to define it, but um, yes. But when you get into a direct campaign situation where there is a candidate that they're trying to defeat or elect, 
then I think it's a different situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my, again, my personal view. I don't know that it's shared by others. What about the other question? You know, you've got somebody um, talking to, <clears throat> pardon me, you've got somebody talking to members of the legislature without registering and without saying who or what he is, what group he is representing necessarily. Um, talking about Michael Quinn Sullivan here, but there are others actually. Um, where should the line be between, I just want to call my state rep and do something, or my state senator, or my group is interested in doing that on the one hand, and on the other hand saying, um, you, need to, you need to sign up, you're AT&T. I mean, these are kind of- well, I, think there, I think there are rules. I'm not you know, familiar specifically with every one of them, but I think there are rules that he clearly didn't qualify under. I mean, he's not a volunteer. Right. Um, and um, he's not working, you know, for the United Way. Um, um, if he was working for the United Way, it'd be all right. <laughs> well, I don't know. If 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 work if the United Way fits under whatever the law is, it would be. Right. If they doesn't, it wouldn't be. But eight, I think it was an eight to zero unanimous view of the of the Ethics Commission that he didn't qualify mm -hmm. to to do what he did without registering, mm -hmm. and that's where his problem is. Okay. There's a, you know, this is a peripheral issue that I'm interested in. They may not be, but there's a, there's a question about who is a reporter. And, you know, when you, it used to be easy to say that one works for a newspaper, that one works for a TV station, that one works for radio. Now it's blurry. And there are groups that, and there are journalists who work for publications of whatever kind that have an ideological viewpoint. Um, you know, one of them's 60 years old. The Texas Observer's been here for ages. Um, when you get to this point where you're looking at a spectrum of people calling themselves journalists who include sort of like, you know, old school definition of journalists all the way to maybe this is an advocate, do we let them on the floor of the house? Where, where's the thinking on this right now? I don't know where the thinking is. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Um, I do know what I would like to see happen, and that's, I'd like for the, I'd like for the, the, press association or the whatever organization is out there of media members to kind of maybe self self describe what's legitimate and what's not I don't know mm -hmm. um, but um, the media landscape clearly is changing the Texas Tribune is an example of that um, but um, those that have a, a have a political point of view that that then engage in campaign politics and they're nothing but political consultants who are, you know, working in the off year, um, maybe fit under a different, different uh, definition. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, the San Antonio Express News makes endorsements in campaigns. So I, I don't know where the line is, but it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one and it's complicated. Um, and again, I'd like for the, maybe the media associations to help us sort it out. Most states don't allow the press on the floor of their chambers. Um, is it um, is that going to continue? I mean, there was a time when the press was on tables down the middle aisle of the house, um, and they decided there was too much monkey business going on there, so they moved us off to the side. Is the, does the press... So it's all the monkey business is us now, right? It's well, okay. yeah, leave, right. The, leave that to you guys. Um, does, the, does the media belong on the floor of the house at all? Well, I think, you know, outside the rails is the only... They're on the floor, but not where... Not in the restricted areas. Um, and I, I haven't had a problem with it, mm -hmm. um, but I don't know how things, you know, might change. Um, I, was, I just went to a meeting of fellow speakers of the House from around the country, and, and I hadn't really talked about this with anyone, but it came up. 
in our meeting. It's, it's funny, some, some of these same issues that come up, ethics-related issues and right. media uh, credential issues and those sorts of things are popping up in all states, not just here. Um, and, and I was surprised there's a real, there's a real um, diversity of how, how the media is handled. Um, a lot of them are not allowed on the floor, mm -hmm. I, I understand. I'm not necessarily in favor of that, but it's going to be tough to know where to draw the lines these days. Tell me how this session's going to go. So when you came in in 2009, you were the new guy. You'd only been here a minute. Now you're the speaker. Um, this time you're the old guy, regardless of how the elections go, or the most experienced guy. You're not old. Um, most experienced guy, um, no matter which lieutenant governor, no matter which governor you get, everybody else is sort of new at their job. Um, how do you anticipate... I guess, I guess one way to, to ask this would be, doesn't that put you in control? Nobody has control. Nobody should have control. Um, I've, I've, been around the, I've been around the track a few times. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen some different, some different scenarios. Our state's had its ups and downs. We're on a, we're on a pretty good up right now. Um, but nobody's in control. There's 100 and, 181 legislators and, and the presiding officer of the Senate, the governor. We're going to have a whole lot of other changes, too, up and down the, the slate from land commissioner and ag commissioner and comptroller and Railroad Commission, Supreme Court, so it's, it's a you know, very refreshing time, I think, um, ahead. And I, my prediction for the session is that it's going to be um, orderly and, and, um, and, and not as scary as some people are predicting just because new people are coming in. I think it's going to be fine. Texas is in pretty good shape. Um, we need to continue to be focused on those issues that the House, I'm very proud to say, has been focused on. Education, higher education, uh, infrastructure and making sure that, that we have a, a well-trained workforce for the opportunities that are coming to this state and that we want to keep coming here. Where's the agenda going to come from? You know, one of the observations people have made about this particular election cycle so far, we've still got seven weeks to change this, is that not much in the way of a mandate is coming out of this. It's not like a clear voters want X and Y and Z. And you walk this line between, you know, the House, let the House, the will of the House prevail, and let the speaker just preside over that. And at the same time, I guess in the last session in particular, there's two or three things that you wanted to get done in a general sense to give them some sort of direction. What's the mandate this time? What's the session going to be out about? And who's going to set that? Well, I'll hopefully be involved. Um, but the, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the, the hive of activity that the, that the Capitol is, is, is right now, several weeks before an election. We're working on issues right now. Um, we, we announced recently, I think, something that's going to, over time, become a very important reform to how we do our budgeting, mm -hmm. uh, the, the um, strategic fiscal review. Uh, we're going right now looking at, at um, somewhere between a dozen and 20 agencies, some really big, important agencies, putting them under the microscope and asking some fundamental questions, not just how much money do we give you last time and how much do you need now. We're asking the fundamental questions about the mission that their agency is asked to perform, and are they doing it? And if they're not, why not? Mm -hmm. And is it a matter of money or not? Um, you, may, you may well see some agencies that don't exist as a result of this. You may see some agencies that get better funding because of this deep dive. Um, so I, it may not be very exciting to talk about, but I think it's going to be a very important uh, budget reform for Texas. <clears throat> We're also... <clears throat> Doing, continuing to do some very important work in budget transparency. Right. This last session, um, Representatives <clears throat> Otto and Darby did an outstanding job 
um, whittling away what was about a $5 billion um, dedicated account problem we had, where we were piling up money in these dedicated accounts, but we weren't using them for their intended purposes. Right. In one session, what took 20 years to build to a $5 billion issue, 20% of it has gone away. We're going to continue to do more of that. I made an announcement this summer uh, that I think will be a really strong boost for transportation funding. And that's that for the first time in almost a century, gas tax revenue, fuel tax revenue, is going to go to transportation, and transportation only. Where are you going to get the money to replace that? This is money that goes from the gas tax right now to the Department of Public Safety and some other things. Right. Um, and if you direct it toward transportation, you're taking it away from something. What are you going to replace it with? We'll fund the Department of Public Safety. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll find it. I mean, it, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the core But You see what I'm asking? Functions. You're talking, to, yeah. you're talking well, about a lot of money being moved into transportation and away from other things. This is a good year to be doing it. The economy is doing well. Yeah. Um, I think we'll be in good enough shape to be able to end the diversions in transportation and uh, adequately fund the Department of Public Safety at the same time. We've been in sort of a mode for a while of, um, you know, voters have been pretty price sensitive. You know, they're against taxes, they're against fees, they want, you know, to tamp some of this down. There's been some emphasis in the last two or three years, some of it coming from you about sort of a more product sensitive, well, we've got to do roads, we've got to do water, we've got to do some social infrastructure, education, whatever. Are we in a place now where Texas is going to spend some more money on some things, or are we in a place where the state needs to be redirected? Is there anything going on now in state government, in the budget area, and in program areas that's um, evolutionary in a significant way, or are we sort of in a holding pattern? We're going to keep doing the things we're doing, only, only better. Well, let me talk about water that you mentioned. That was one of the, I think, signature achievements at the last session. Right. And it was not easy, uh, but it was a very creative approach and a very successful approach to um, addressing maybe the most important challenge the state faces. And that's an adequate supply of water for a growing, a growing population. And it would have been easy to say, well, you know, tough. Go it, go it alone out there in your local communities. But we didn't. And Chairman Ritter did a fantastic job. He was creative. He was fiscally uh, prudent mm -hmm. and uh, put together a program that will, that will kickstart tens of billions of dollars worth of local water projects across the state. Did it in a way that was very constructive. Did it in a way that, and it wasn't, wasn't my uh, first choice to, to pass a constitutional amendment that was subject to approval by the voters. Mm -hmm. I, I called it California-style governing. I didn't like it. But the Senate wouldn't go along with my approach, which, which was just to vote it up or down. Turned out to be a blessing in disguise because, and I, and I <laughs> for losing that argument, I got to chair the campaign statewide to pass it. But, uh, but it was a good experience and, and proved that, that if you bring people together and you show that your elected officials are really trying to solve some problems, and um, we, had, we had industry and we had uh, conservation groups, we had agriculture, we had rural people. We had um, Republicans and Democrats. And that thing passed 73%. It was only a scratch, though, wasn't it? I mean, is this the right perception? That it was, you know, you've got something that's been described as a $53 billion problem. You've got a $1 or $2 billion bond issue that passed last time. No, it was a $2 billion commitment by the state. 
that leads to $53 billion in so you think this bonded, will, this will bonded projects. So you think this That's will why it was, so it was creative. It was a right. very, very, um, it wasn't passing $2 billion in bonds for $2 billion of projects. It was passing $2 billion from our rainy day fund right. to another fund, a revolving fund. It's not that money isn't going to be spent. It's going to be put out to get projects started and for them to be financed with other, with other debt. So does that work in other areas? Does that work with roads? Does that work with education? Does it work with higher ed? I don't know. If it, if it does, we'll try to do it. I'm not sure it does in other areas, but it worked for water, and, and um, I'm very proud of that accomplishment. And I think, again, it sets the template for what I want to see more of from the House, which is creative solutions to really serious challenges for the state. Do you think the state's going to get, you know, one of the big things that got left on the table, there was a lot of discussion about it. There was a lot of debate um, about Medicaid expansion. And it's basically, you know, the state was in a position more or less to put $10 billion into Medicaid and draw down $100 billion over a 10-year period. And for a variety of reasons, the legislature and the governor and, and the other, some of the other leaders turned that down. But that's a recurrent question. And you hear it a lot from the hospitals. You hear it a lot from the medical community. Is that coming back, and, and where are you on it? Well, it's very clear the legislature wasn't going to approve a Medicaid expansion because they didn't trust the federal government to live up to its side of the bargain. Mm -hmm. um, and that over time it would get out of hand and be unsustainable for the state to continue. Um, and I don't quarrel with that. What I said then and what I still believe is that we can't do nothing. Um, that that um, our local communities, I live in San Antonio, property taxes are going to pay for a lot of care that could be um, handled in another way. I hope we find some market-based market -based solutions. We're looking at some other states as examples. I talked to the speaker in Indiana recently. They've done some things that are innovative that they think the federal government's going to support. Some things over in Arkansas I don't know enough about to be for or against, but... We need, to, we need to be looking for something that Texas can do that politically is acceptable and that, um, that, that gets us off this reliance of, of, um, of our hospitals having to rely on property taxes and, and, and raising premiums in the private sector mm -hmm. uh, to cover for health care that's being delivered. Is there a way to get more money out of taxpayers in a way that's more, I guess, not more money, is there a way to get money out of taxpayers in a way that's more acceptable to them? We've got the school finance case. We don't have a statewide property tax. There's been a suggestion if we had a statewide property tax, we would at least have the school finance cases out of the way. Maybe that's right. Maybe it's not. We have these arguments about in the legislature about property taxes for hospital districts, and we're not opening federal funds that are available to us. How do you get out of this? Well, generically, um, the, best way to, the best way to raise revenue from taxpayers in a way that they can accept is to grow the economy. Right. But we've been doing that, and we've still got these problems. We're doing it, and it's working. Um, specifically to your point, though, I don't, and there's, always, there's always a better way to, to you know, conduct our tax policy, and we're going to have a thorough debate about property taxes and sales taxes and every kind of tax that's, that's out there, and we should. Okay. But growing the economy is the, is the main goal, I think, that we have, and continuing the private sector growth that, that leads to, to more tax revenue and then and therefore services that, that can keep up with the population growth. Let's talk about your main dance partner. What do you think of the Texas Senate? Uh, they've gotten, you know, there's been an, for the Senate, there's been an extraordinary amount of turnover. And if the elections go a certain way, we could have eight new senators this time. It looks like in most cases, not in every case, I don't think, but in most cases, 
Everybody who leaves is replaced by somebody who is at least a notch or two more conservative than they were. It's a more conservative body than it was two or four sessions ago. Um, walk me through this. Well, you know, I, I hesitate to get too much involved in Senate business with the false hope that they'll stay out of ours. But um, <laughs> they, I, I don't worry about it too much. I think... Um, I think that being a, a senator is a, is a very um, important position. Um, you know, we have 150 members in the House and only 31 over there, so each one of them has an enormous responsibility for a lot of people. Right. And I, I think that once they're sworn in and once they see what the legislature, those that weren't in the House and don't already know, um, that, that once they see what work is required and only 140 days to do it, um, they won't have that much time for the kind of you know, some of it, maybe some of the campaign rhetoric that uh, doesn't directly translate into uh, the job that we have to do, like like, well, like passing a budget. That's kind of the question. Are they going to send you a bunch of stuff the House just can't or won't pass? Well, we start the budget this time in the House, so we'll, um, we'll help things get started. Uh-huh. What are they going to be doing while you're starting the budget? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. That's their business, but I, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think it's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. The, the system works when you let it. And um, the voters may have voted for more conservative replacements for senators that didn't come back. Um, and, and that's the way they describe themselves. But Texas is a conservative state. The work of the legislature the last few sessions has been a conservative um, outcome. So I don't, I don't think it's going to be a remarkably different um, way of doing business. Do you think the House is going to go in the same direction? The Senate's been getting more conservative. Do you think? Do you see that? How do you see politics evolving over the next two or three years? Well, we have a we have a very states. we have a very strong Republican majority. It's going to be a conservative legislature, but it has been uh, since um, since the '09 session. It has been a conservative legislature. We've passed balanced budgets. We've provided tax relief. Um, we've we've given more local control to the school districts. Um, and we've done, you know, we've protected the Second Amendment. And, you know, go down the list. We've done a lot of things that are considered conservative. But uh, we've done it in a way that doesn't shut anybody out or doesn't give people an a alternative voice. And um, I think you'll see more of that, more of the same. You're running for your fourth term as speaker. How many are you going to do? The record's five. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It is. <laughs> okay. Well, I won't be setting a record this time. How long, how long do you want to do it? And, and I don't, you know, I really don't know. I, I, um, I don't want to be a, I don't want to be that old man you described me as uh, earlier <laughs> in the legislature. I don't, I don't know. I'm not in a hurry to leave, and I'm proud of the work that we're doing, and totally committed to the next session. And I've always taken this one session at a time. I'm not, I'm not good enough to to look too far ahead or to, to, to do the job I have in front of me, which is a very challenging one, and at the same time try to, you know, think about doing something else. Mm-hmm. You've had a bunch of turnover among the leaders in the House, which is, I guess, both a blessing and a curse for a speaker because your lieutenants are leaving, but you get to keep all the, the mob happy because you get to pass out lieutenantships. Um, tell me where you think things are there and, and, and what your thoughts are about committees and stuff. Well, you're right. It is a blessing, and, a, and, and you know, kind of on the downside, you, you miss friends that you get really close to and admire a lot. Um, but overall, it's, it's, it's a time of refreshment in the House, and I think it's going to be a very good thing. We have a lot of younger or newer members who have 
have um, uh, displayed a lot of talent. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of members that have been around longer than one or two or three terms who haven't had a chance to do what they really want to do in terms of leadership positions. Um, I think you'll see. Um, I think you'll see some moving around. You'll see some some new new faces, new blood, and it'll be a good thing all in all. And it, it is you know it is good for a speaker. I mean, right? Very frankly, it is good for a speaker to have a natural. Um, you know, a natural migration once in a while. Mm -hmm. And um, I look forward to, to new ideas, a fresh approach to doing things, and it and, uh, keeps, keeps things alive. They're already writing a budget. They're already working on some things, as you say, in the Capitol going forward into this. But you don't have an appropriations chairman. Who's that going to be? We have a lot of really good people on appropriations. The new LBB members uh, that we just named. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Darby and Otto and Zerwas are, you know, have been doing a tremendous job under under Chairman Pitts's leadership. They know what they're doing. Representative Crownover is another one who's very involved in the budget and taking on some some other assignments related to the budget right now. So you've named um, at least three disappointed people. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think that's the case at all. We have a really good team of leaders uh, in the Texas House. Clearly, they can't all be chairman of the same committee, right. but there's a lot of work to go around, a lot of really important um, leadership positions, and, and fortunately for me and fortunately for the House of Representatives and for the state of Texas, there's a lot of good people to do the work. Have you made decisions on some of these yet? Or? I haven't even thought about it. Really? Really haven't thought about it. No. And I don't ever think about it until the time comes. <laughs> some people would say I never think about it. but. Um, no, I really haven't. I, I want to see, um, I want to get through the November election. I want to get a little bit past that. I want to see how the, how the interim reports come along from the committees that are working now. Uh -huh. I want to see what the agenda lines up to be. And, um, and then when we get into the session, I want to talk to the members too and find out what they want to do. And um, it doesn't take too long. A few weeks after we start, we get, get things going and, and get it organized and run. It's a little bit like a sports team. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got players that, with talents, and you've got to see where, you're, where, you, um, where your offense needs, needs, needs the big guys and the fast ones and this and that, and then, and then you work around it. Plus, the other part that's a little too much inside here, but um, a lot of the committee assignments are self-selected by the members. Right. And, it, and it's, you know, by seniority. And a speaker has to work through that, too. Get, a, get an idea of, of the self-selected members and where they're going to be. And that gives, gives the speaker an idea of who, um, who I should appoint and then who the chairman should be. Okay. Okay, I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'm going to start taking questions from the audience. So if you have one, there's a mic over here. They're still here. There's a mic over there. They're still here. <laughs> they have the lights set so we can barely tell you're still here. But if you have a question, head for one of these mics. Um, it's weird to be this close to an election and not be talking about threats from the election. You only have, if I'm really charitable, I'm, I'm curious if your assessment's the same. If I'm really charitable with the word competitive, there are fewer than a dozen seats in the Texas House that are up for grabs. And if all of them went one way or the other, it wouldn't really change the nature of the House much. Is that? That's what I'm hearing. Um, I mean, we'll find out. All this stuff just happens around you. <laughs> That's what we, I, you know, I really don't, I don't look at polls, and I don't, I don't even, I don't live in Austin, um, but I'm aware. And um, I think that's probably a pretty fair assessment of where we are. Um, I'll be working uh, between now and November to help 
are good Republican incumbents around the state. And, um, but I, I, I think this is going to be a cycle, and it has been through, through the um, primary and the runoffs, at least in the House. It's been good for incumbents. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't see a lot of change. I think we'll retain our healthy Republican majority and, and um, a lot of stability in the Texas House. Okay. One perspective question. We have four people with strong or weak Texas ties at least running for the Republican presidential nomination or making noises like they might. Um, got a preference? Well, um, I'll give you a hint. When I was a very young man, I grew up in a Republican family in San Antonio that was involved in the evolution of the Republican Party, the modern Republican Party, and uh, we were very close to um, the Bush family. Okay. So you're not going to be voting for Rand Paul? I'm, we couldn't get we couldn't get, I, I don't, we couldn't I, get George P last <laughs> night to endorse his father. Would you endorse his father? <laughs> well, I'm I'm going to wait for George, I guess. But I, I no, I mean I, I obviously I'm a big I'm a big fan of the of the Bushes. I'm I'm 41 is my hero of all time, um, and um, we'll we'll see how it develops. I don't know. It's it, it's a long way. I mean, ne never in my memory, or seldom in my memory, has there been at this stage two years before an election, presidential election, to even know how things are, are going to lay out. I don't know who's interested and who's not, um, but I, I suggest there are other surprises. I'm also, I, I happen to know Senator Portman from Ohio and a huge fan of his. Heard some talk that he may be st uh, sticking his toe in the water. Not that I would be a disloyal Texan, but um, there'll be other choices out there too, and it all, it all plays itself out. Do you think and, it, and it probably doesn't matter too much who the Texas House Speaker is for. Do you think the Texans will run? Do you think Perry will run? Do you think Cruz will run? Well, they sure look like they're headed that way. Right. Uh, but again, I, I think you know, it's way too early to tell. I think you have to wait until maybe early next year to have a better sense of it. Okay, great. Um, do we have any audience questions at all? Uh, yes, sir. Hi. Um, Speaker, do you stand to gain financially from expanded gambling at Texas racetracks via royalties? By, by what? Royalties. Um, this well, my, fa my family would. Thank you. But, but to, you know, so this <clears> is clearly I've been, my, my family has been in, in horse racing and breeding uh, for, gosh, since the probably 1920s. It's almost 100 years. And, um, and then later, I guess in the, my dad particularly was very involved in, in bringing horse racing back to Texas since it was outlawed in the de after the Depression. Um, and he and my uncle <clears throat> were involved in Rotama Park in San Antonio. Um, all fully, you know, disclosed, known. I'm not hiding from it. Um, but, think, but, but the first thing I do every session is, is sign a form and into the record that I recuse myself from any, any type of gaming legislation. And I have very, been very strict about it. I don't even talk to other members about it. And nothing has advanced uh, since I've been speaker. So I'm very careful about that and, um, and not, trying to, not trying to hide the ball. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a... I'm not philosophically opposed um, to horse racing or to, or to gaming. I think, you know, it's a big world out there, and I stay out of it legislatively, but I hide nothing. 
All of the gaming legislation in the state has passed to date. Lottery, bingo, horse racing has happened in times when the state's budget was really tight. I'm, I'm curious if you see the environment for this to come up, if you see any issues, whether you're participating in, in them or not. Do you see this issue advancing? I guess the we're looking at a couple of court cases just in the last week on historical racing where they run old horse races with the numbers yeah. stripped off. Uh, seems kind of weird. But, uh, I might be better at that. <laughs> that game. Um, do you think that there's going to be any kind of a push for gaming? This no, time? I don't think there will be at all. Okay. Okay. Here. Dennis Burrell, Coalition of Texans with Disabilities, Mr. Speaker. Our community care programs for citizens with disabilities and seniors are uh, very cost-effective, allow people to live independently, stay in their own homes, avoid hospitalizations, nursing homes. Yet they rely on a workforce where the floor wage is $7.86 an hour with no benefits, no paid sick leave, no paid vacation, no paid holidays. We see this as a crisis situation. Would you agree, and will you do something to, about it? Well, yeah, thank you. That's a very good question and a good point, and I, yes, I would agree. I would agree it is. It's a problem. Um, I think one, one thing that we're beginning to do about it, if, if you count it as an action, is um, a select committee that, that Representative King, Susan King um, of Abilene, is heading up uh, to expand the health care workforce in the state. I would, I would recommend that maybe you weigh in with them and um, see what suggestions they might be coming up with to, to help with that problem. I'll do so. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yes, sir. Speaker, uh, this is a Homer question, right? Councilman, Councilman Cryer. I, I think you know how much we in San Antonio appreciate your calm leadership in the in the House. But my question goes back to the conversation about transportation. And number one, thank you for your leadership in the effort to try to end diversions, which would put hundreds of millions of new dollars back into transportation. Over the last decade, we have seen the rise of public-private partnerships, comprehensive development agreements, and an expanded network of privately financed or government privately financed highways in this state, usually paid for with tolls. Is your long-term goal here to get the Texas to get Texas back to a hundred percent? TxDOT-funded highways to meet our expanded highway need, or do you see an ongoing role, uh, particularly in our big cities, for uh, privately financed highway construction? I think I think 100% funding by TxDOT the way it used to be is a wonderful goal to have. And if it's going to be met, it's going to be met in the very long term. Uh, so I guess... I guess I think as a practical matter, in order to keep up with infrastructure demands, if our state continues to grow and our economy and industry continues to grow and puts the demands on our existing um, uh, road infrastructure the way it has, I don't think we're going to get to 100% in the near term. So other, so other um, ideas that are locally supported, I think, would, would be in line. Are we getting forced back to pay as you go by the fact that we've sort of used our credit and we've kind of got our toll roads you know, I don't well, know what some, the maximum for that is. But. Yeah. Well, some of us don't, don't have a problem with pay-as-you-go or being forced into it. it Maybe it's been the only um, way we could find money for transportation right. is through debt. And um, we have maxed it out. We can't go any further there. In fact, we ought to be looking at, at, um, at that very carefully, make sure we haven't overextended. Um, but I think these, these, um, these um, initiatives, Proposition 1 that's on the ballot, in uh, November, which is not a 
not a sustainable long-term solution, but it's a step, it's a helpful step uh, to increasing transportation funding. I think it'll pass. Do you and think then, it'll pass like water did? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I think, it, I think it'll pass healthily, it should. Right. Um, but, um, but the um, ending the diversions, that, those two things together are several billion dollars additional to, to um, transportation funding just in the near term. Yes, sir. Yeah, hi, my name is David Wiley. I'm from San Marcos. And, Mr. Speaker, I want to tell you, I've been coming to these uh, events for a number of years, and I appreciate you. You're one of the few speakers who actually says, I don't know, instead of going back to. <laughs> it comes naturally. It comes naturally to me. Yeah, well, good for you, yeah. So that's kind of the point of my question is, you seem to be thoughtful, deliberative, and very moderate in the way that you approach everything. How frustrating is it for you to try to manage the fringe elements of your own party who are in the hyperbole and extreme positions when you're really looking for thoughtful, evidence-based, uh, database solutions to our problems? I hope he has better luck well, than I, I do. I'm not going to say I don't know here. Um, I, I, um, I don't manage those people you described, and they don't manage me, um, but I try to help manage the House to... Um, set an example that is unlike Washington, D.C., where we try to come up with solutions to the really important challenges. I love the fact that we have a limited government system in Texas. We meet 140 days every other year. There's not time to go outside, you know, outside the lines too far. Just focus on, focus on what's important, education, um, higher education, infrastructure, resources, and... Um, Pretty soon, those 140 days are eaten up just doing the things you have to do, public safety. And um, so I, I don't worry about politics too much as long as we get our job the way that I think we've been doing it uh, in the House and the way that I like to, to work. I want to keep us as far away from the polarized, do-nothing Washington as we can get. And um, I hope that Washington will heal itself. I hope that they'll look to the Texas House for examples on how to reach across and make some accommodations with one another when you have divided government, and start thinking about longer-term solutions. People are hungry for government that's efficient, that's effective, and that they can believe in. These, these national polls are abysmal. Was it 9% approval? Right. Uh, it's reflected in the voter turnout. You've written about it. Yeah. Um, one of the strongest signals a public official can have right now is how many millions of people are not voting. They're not even holding their nose in voting. They're looking the other way and going as far away from us as they can get. Uh, and it's important to me, as long as I'm in public service, to, to not fall into that, to that trap. Thank you. Okay, got time for a couple more. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Speaker, uh, first off, I think there was a missed opportunity to truly, truly thank you with a, a significant round of applause for your leadership on this water issue. Thank I you. really do. Thank It, it, it's not done by any means, but uh, your courageous leadership along with House members and others for doing that, I, I think, will be a hallmark um, on your career. Two quick questions. One is when UT Austin plays UTSA, which <laughs> side of the field will you be sitting on, number one? That, that I can answer. Okay. All right. Number two, uh, number two is Georgia just surpassed Texas as number one in the country for recruitment and attraction according to all the site selectors, which is the first time in over a decade that we've dropped to number two. Part of it dealt with perception of the business climate 
in the state, the other one was water one more time. So at the end of the session, at the end of the session, but also more importantly along the way, what's the message that you want the legislature, in a sense, to signal to the rest of the world that this is still an innovative and competitive state? Okay. Well, let's talk about UTSA football. <laughs> um, Coach Corker, Coker's done a great job. They surprised Houston in the first game, and they're on their way. All right, now to the unimportant question. Um, um, I did see that where, where Georgia has, you know, surpassed us in whatever ranking that was. We're still number one in most of them, most of the rankings. Um, but we can't rest on our laurels or take anything for granted uh, in terms of job creation. The numbers that we've had in the last few years have been astounding and something to be really proud of. Um, one of the other initiatives we haven't talked about here today is one that we uh, put in place uh, this summer, headed by Representative um, Button from Dallas, um, that's looking at all economic incentive programs in the state of Texas, all of them, not just the ones that are in the headlines all the time, Enterprise Fund and Emerging Technology, but 313 and all, all of the rest, the whole thing, to make sure that what we're doing in Texas is, is absolutely up-to-date and effective in terms of attracting jobs to the state. Economic mm -hmm. development is critical that we get it right. Some of our programs that we have in Texas may have outlived their usefulness. Some may need to be, um, to be tailored a bit. As a general matter, do you think we should have incentive funds of some kind? I think we need to do whatever it takes to continue to grow our economy. I don't want to um, unilaterally disarm. Um, but we need, to, we need to make them right. We need to make sure they're fair and that they truly are effective in, in bringing jobs here, not just window dressing for jobs that might come anyway. Okay. Great. I'm getting the hook here. Uh, give a warm round of applause to Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right. On to your next brackets.